Let's just start this, Dustin. I was born started. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so in this episode, we talked to Michael Coffey, a.k.a. Starbucks. That's Starbucks B-U-K-S, right? Yeah, yeah, Starbucks. And so That's his rapper name? That's his rapper name, yeah. And so he's from Fairbanks. He was in town. He's been recording Black Polar Bear, which is his upcoming album. We actually followed him around for a short documentary that we're working on. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, that was really sweet. We just reached 1,000 listens on the podcast. Whoa, 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 whoa. 1,000. 1,000? 1,000. So thank you guys. Thanks everyone who's been listening. Thanks to our patrons, first and foremost. Our company men. Oh, yeah. Trina Duber and Seward Brewing Company. Yep, and I think we might have a couple more in the pipeline if you're out there listening. More company men? Yeah, I think there's some more coming in. Oh, dang. Well, I've been be working the phones. <laughs> You've been working well, the phones? And the handshakes, too. I went up to Fairbanks and I might have might have landed, crewed a new company man up there. Okay. Okay. Mostly I'm still finalizing the deals, but, you know, an investor's an investor. That's what's up, dude. <laughs> But yeah, a thousand listens, that's pretty sweet. Now what's the next what's the next milestone then? I think um I, I just think every every thousand would be great. And it sounds like uh from We're gonna have a party every thousand listeners? From what Starbucks said to us on social media, he's claiming that his podcast alone will get a thousand and he's gonna it sounds like he's betting a hundred dollars on it. Wait, there's been there's been some money thrown in that's on what this? The, that's what the post he said, um I didn't see yeah, that. Yeah, he said is like I got a hundred bucks on it that it's it will reach a thousand listens. His podcast alone, this one that you're about to listen to, dude. If if we get a thousand listens, I would pay him a hundred bucks. So, <laughs> Wait, did I just put that on the record? <laughs> I guess so. All right, dude. All right. Let's see if this reaches a thousand. What's the time limit? Oh, for a thousand? Yeah. Um, like, like how soon, you know? Cause I mean, obviously all the episodes are going to reach a thousand at some point. Yeah. The audience is growing. What if we do like a month? What if we give them a month? All right. We'll give them a month. Or do you think longer or shorter? Let's go three weeks. Three weeks. That's kind of a month, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of minus a week. <laughs> um, let's do that. And then, I, I don't know though. It's like, okay. Is this coming out of the crude budget, or is the hundred bucks coming out of my budget? Um, I don't know. We're gonna have to have a business meeting about that one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Because I kind of offered it up on. <laughs> well, you're editing this. The, so. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I think in in the in the honor of transparency, I should leave it in. All right, <laughs> let's do it. Yeah, awesome. All so right, he, Starbucks, dude. He's from Fairbanks. That's where I'm from. Yep. It's sick, dude. We all have Gold like, King. The, the Gold Kings. Yeah, Gold Kings. All right, What's, let's. Let's get into it. Oh, okay. We'll just stop talking about Starbucks then and just get into it. <laughs> Mike is hot. Mike's hot? Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's recording. That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! It was your birthday the other day, right? Yeah, man. Yeah. I'm just like, fuck, I'm 17 all over again. <laughs> Love that movie. 17 again. 17 again, man. Definitely was an eye opener. Shit, nah, 37, man. Never thought I'd make it this far, but. You're 37? I'm, I'm 37. Black don't crack, baby. Age <laughs> will, man. I try to take good care of my body. I was in the whiskey I abuse. That's about it. Do you use lotion? Lotion constantly. Uh, you know, I hate to be sound stereotypical, but 
cocoa butter lotion like most black people. We <laughs> I love cocoa butter. <clears throat> Softens my skin, makes me look young. Other than the uh, patch of gray hairs I got and the gray hairs coming in on the side of my beard. But, you know, it's life. <laughs> you know, I, I looked at you like, like, oh, you're old, 37. And it's like, I'm fucking 33. So I'm like pretty close too, man. We're all just getting kind of old. And you're I'm, already I'm, cracking. Look, just look at it. Just look at it like this. I'm a senior. You're a freshman. You're right behind me, boss. You got, you got any extra cocoa butter? <laughs> yes, I, I travel with it, man. I actually travel with it. Do you have any right now? <laughs> yeah, in my bag. Yeah, yeah, in my bag. I travel with it. I, I got it. Can't be running around ashy. You talk about being 17. What was your life like when you were 17? Were you in Fairbanks? Yeah, uh, I was. Uh, I was out on my own. I was kicked out of my mom's house for my behavior. And uh, I had a job at Sears, and then I had a job selling dope. So I had my own apartment at 17. Um, I was on the verge. Of, I was actually kicked out of school, so I was doing correspondence. I was kicked out of school for my behavior, and uh, I was really just wrapped up in the streets and trying to keep a roof over my head. So, But it were, it ended up working out for me. But it was, uh, it was I left home at an early age, man. That was tough for me, learning experiences. And where'd you go? When you left home, fuck my grandparents uh, owned an apartment complex where you guys hear people uh, hear stories called a coffee corner. My grandparents, my grandfather owned it, and uh, I rented an apartment in it. But before that, I was man, I was staying in trap houses. I was selling dope and just staying in trap houses. I would whoever the you know whoever had, whoever the dope fiend was, whoever house it was. What kind of dope? I was selling crack cocaine, man. Crack. That was crack. I don't no other drugs. We didn't have. I didn't have no experience with no other drugs. Never fuck with no heavy drugs or nothing like did that. Did you make the crack, or yeah, from yeah, coke? Yeah. Or yeah. did you buy it as crack and then sell it? As it crack? just depend. It just depend, man. Because I, I, when I was at a young age, when I would get my coke, when I get my when I would get my work, I would. Uh, I didn't know how to cook it, so I'd have to pay like a dolphin to like come and teach me how to cook up my work. And so they would come and like they cook it up, and I give them a little piece. But then I'm like, man, this is kind of becoming costly, you know, and it's not cost effective to me. So there were some guys that would sell it to you already ready, and then some t a lot of guys didn't. What happened was is you get caught with crack, the mandatory minimums for your sentence skyrocket. You go to federal prison, opposed to if you get caught with coke. Obama actually changed that in his administration, right? Or yes. Like tried to lighten yes. that. Yes. He also he did that, and he also um, he also uh, gave the two point reduction for first time offenders, you know, uh, victimless crimes, you know, drug crimes. So that's how a lot of guys got out. That's how some of my family and some of my cousins got out of prison a little earlier. Is because they got a two point reduction on their sentence, so they were they were eligible to get out a little earlier. So what year was this that you were that you started selling crack? Oh, I could tell you, it's funny that you asked me that because I, I had a moment when I had my birthday the other day, you know, I just sat and I reflected on where I've been and where I came through, but I started selling dope October, October 5th of 1996. My mom gave me part of my dividend and a week prior, two weeks prior, I'd asked her, I said, hey, um, can I get some money to go to the movies? And she said, boy, you need to get a job or get a hustle. She was not telling me to go sell dope. My mom is, my mom's a Bible thumper. She was totally against that, but the influences that I had around me. So I was just like, man, fuck, I can't get no money from my mom to go get a haircut or go to the, go to the movie theaters and go kick it with these girls and my homeboys. And so, you know, two weeks later, um, three, it was three days after my birthday, dividends came out and she gave me part of my dividend. And I went to the nearest dope boy and was like, yo, this is what I got. Work with me. And it was like riding a bike. So, so how much did that get you, the dividend? 
The dividend, I, I got I got a quarter ounce. That's what I got. I bought a quarter ounce, uh, a crack, and... It was already rocked up. It was already rocked up. What happened is, like I said, throughout time, when people started paying attention to the mandatory sentences and the, uh, harshest, the harsher penalties for crack, guys quit selling it to you like that, you know? Because to get it like that was like, shh, sh money. You don't have to, you're not going to lose anything. You got it right here. You don't got to put it in the water. You don't got to whip it up. Everything that you got, you you can see your profit right there. As to, or opposed to where when you get it in powder form, you put it in the water, you cook it up, you lose a little bit. You know what I mean? And so when it came, when you got it like that, it was like, it was like buying, it was instant gratification. It was like buying fucking McDonald's. You know what I mean? It was like grabbing McDonald's. Your shit's already ready for you. Did you ever get high on your own supply? Never used a heavy drug in my entire life. Heaviest drug I ever did was, um, I tried ecstasy one time and it wasn't for me. And other than that, I tried mushrooms and I fucking laughed for two days. <laughs> two days? <laughs> listen, listen. So I tried these mushrooms. My homeboy Bishop, uh, my homeboy out of Oregon. Um, he's, he might not want me to say his name. They have, he's good, super. they have good mushrooms in Oregon. Yeah, he he taught me. We would go picking mushrooms. We'd pick, yeah. like, this time of year, like right now, we'd go to the, the jetty, I think he called it. We'd go to, like, the coast of Oregon, and we'd pick mushrooms. And he knew all about mushrooms. Yeah, you have to know. Yeah. Because you get the wrong one, you you, get the, you're dead. You're dead or you're yeah, fucked yeah. off. So he, like, studied up on mushrooms, and, like, I trusted this guy. This guy's, like, my brother. So I'm like, man, you know, I'm a nigga from the, I'm an I'm inner city kid. But I'm like, man, this nigga, he's, a, he's, he's mixed, but, like, he's an outdoorsy type motherfucker. He likes to fish and all that shit. So I'm like, man, at first I thought the nigga was taking me somewhere to kill me. You know, man, <laughs> what was going through your head then? You're like, I, I, you I, I, I willingly missed, going? I had missed like two months rent. Like we were living together. Like I was like, this nigga might be taking me out here to kill me right now. You know? Instead he got you high. Yeah. Instead he took me out. We picked fucking mushrooms and got, he made mushroom tea. So he was like, man, drink this. I actually have video footage of us making the tea and drinking it. So I got, man, I got some real good shit, but to add on to that story, like I've never used heavy drugs. It's never been a part of me. I never tried any substances, powder or anything. It just was never, to me and my age group, how I grew up, me and, me and my family and my cousins, we saw when crack hit and we saw how it devastated our family internally. So to use heavy drugs was like taboo. Like, yeah, nah, we don't fuck around like that. That was kind of how... You know, so what was that like then? Um, you know, when you're, did you have any like, like moral compass? A, a more compass? Is that you, what you you're know what I mean? Me? Like, you're probably seeing some people that are getting pretty tore up, and then you're selling them the shit that's kind of. Here's the deal, man. This is this is the real world, brody. If they don't get it from you, they're gonna get it from somewhere else. I've done things that I'm not proud of, but in that particular lifestyle, I've done things where I walk in the house, I'm selling the mom of the dead crack, or I'm selling them, I'm selling some dope, and they're giving me their last bit of money or their last bit of food stamps and I can see that the kids are hungry. It's a it's so, the mentality. There's a you have to have the mentality. In order to be partly, part way successful in that particular line of work in business, you have to have a, a dog eat dog mentality. Yeah, you have to have that. Yeah, and I'm not trying to pass judgment on you. No, um, I'm just curious if there was ever there moments like when you're sitting in that house and you see those hungry kids and you're like, should I or but you basically have to train yourself. Yep, you got to be ice cold, man. Ice cold, ice cold man. Uh, it's you like know, cognitive dissonance. Yeah, dissonance. Yeah, and then there, there were times where, like, when I started having my own kids, and, and I had my own kids, and I never brought my lifestyle to my home. I never brought. I never had drugs in my home. I never let my kids see me sell drugs. They didn't even know I sold drugs. They didn't weren't aware until I caught my drug charge that I sold drugs. Because I always been a very. Um, a very modest individual, you know, Levi's t-shirts, decent pair of shoes, and a, a baseball cap. 
I still dress like that today. I'm not, I wasn't your typical drug dealer. Fancy cars, bunch of jewelry. I had a fucking, my family had a Toyota Camry that we rode in. You know what I mean? And so it's a nice car. It was. It, it was. It was a. It was a. When I got it's it, not it was an like, Avalon. Oh, wait, no, no, yeah, it wasn't. I mean, I got an Avalon now, but I mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> hybrid. No, uh, no. So they never were exposed to that. But it, it would be times where I would leave home, and I would leave home, and I would go into this environment, you know, and I'd be gone for weeks or months at a time, and then I would come back home. And I would have to transition back into being a parent. And it was very tough. It was almost like suffering from, I really felt like I was suffering from PTSD because I was having moments of mental illness, of like depression. Could you describe that environment? The one that you had to come back from, the one in which they gave you PTSD? Man, just, uh, you know, um, everything that goes into selling drugs, man, you have to be, you have to be secretive. You have to stay off of the radar. It was difficult for me because of my name and my family's name in the community. So they were already looking. So now I, I, my senses have to be 10 times more heightened. And then I got a guy across town that's from my neighborhood. He owes me or he owes a bunch of fucking money. And he's playing games. And I have a zero tolerance policy. You know what I mean? So now I got to go over here. I could either go in here and I could talk to this guy nice and say, hey, man, I give you a set amount of time to have that money. Or I could go in here and crack his fucking melon and say, hey, man, you know what it is. Get this fucking money. You know what I mean? And so it changed. It went from... Uh, it went from doing it and trying to make sure I could put some money in my pocket and some food in my in my family's uh, stomach to turn into a fucking full-time job. As to where, like, now I'm managing other people. I manage, I'm doing this. It's like the mafia. Yes. Yeah, so it, it got, it become, it became overwhelming, you know? There's some things I'm not going to discuss and individuals I'm going to discuss. I'm not going to say those things, but I'm going, I'm going to reflect from my, my stance. But, you know, there were some individuals or some, you know, peoples that weren't as rough around the edges as me. So I had to, sometimes I had to do the dirty work. And then there's different shit that happens, man. There's different shit that happens. Like you get a pack and it's bad and you know it's bad. And then you go- And by a pack, you mean drugs. Yeah, you you get it, you get it, you know it's bad, right? But this shit's gotta go. I don't give a fuck. So now you come and see me, I sell you a bunch, right? And you fork over the cash, right? Now you're stuck with this shitty shit. And then I go and see you, and I got to front you some, right? And I know it's some shitty shit, but still I'm fronting this shit to you. Deal's a deal. This isn't Walmart. There's no receipts. You're not bringing this shit back. And so now I stick you with this shit, and I want my fucking money. And that's how this shit works. And so, like, just it's a number of different situations, man, like, that just pop up throughout this. It's, you know, that's why I laughed when I watched uh, Breaking Bad. There was always so many scenarios in that show where we're just like bad luck or something fucking just happened to go wrong. So being in that environment, you know, having to carry a fucking gun everywhere I go because I know that there's some niggas that don't like me or I shot them some bad work and I it was a lot of money, you know? And I'm, I'm one of those guys, man, hey, I'm in public, buddy. See me about it. Either you could deal with it, live with it, or we could turn this into it, some other shit. Yeah, it seems like there's all these like little things that keep happening that yes. keep you on this like downward trajectory Three. where it's just getting worse and, and worse. worse and worse. And you're steady fucking trying to claw your way out and get out of this shit. So going from those environments, putting myself in particular environments and situations, along with uh, the majority of the time uh, it being winter and being dark. And then I leave here, I board a plane, I go back home, and now I, I got to take off the uniform of being a drug dealer or a dope dealer, and I got to put on the 
uniform of being a father we're, we're, and I was a, and a and a boyfriend and so that was a difficult task. So when you were in it like deep in the thick of it, what was your your projected like end goal? It's like okay, I'm I'm going to was there an end goal or is like I just have to get past today? Some sometimes it's I got to get past today. Sometimes it's you know I want to make enough money to do this. You know, um for reason, it's some things I can't, you know, necessarily talk about. But I always, I always had a goal, and I was able to accomplish some of my goals. But the the more important goals, uh, it wasn't allowing me to accomplish. And I felt like every time I thought that I did something good, or I accomplished something, anything that I accomplished from that was taken from me, or I or I lost. Like I mean, I flew in one time, man. Me and my homeboy, I never forget this. Me and my homeboy, my best friend, man, from childhood. So, you know, he had stayed away from the game. You know, he had a job and everything, and he was doing good. And I was, you know, I was in the streets, and I was like, yo, man, like, I need some help. I can't manage all of this by myself. I can't do all of this by myself. I need you. I need you. He's like, man, I don't want no parts of it, right? He's like, I don't want no parts of it. Well, what happens is he's a manager at a, at a particular place um, while he's on duty, he, I think he was out doing something, and one of the um, employees stole money. So he was fired. He was the manager, so he was fired. And he had had this job for a few years. And so, of course, he gets fired from the job. He falls apart. Because somebody else stole because money. Because somebody else stole money. He's never he's never been a thief in his entire life. Okay. So he, but he's the one that's accountable he for had the drawer. He, he was held accountable for the drawer, so he okay. lost the okay. job. Yeah. So me, in my brain, I'm like, man, this is the perfect time. And I'm like, yo, man, it's better now than never. So he takes my advice. We're doing things, man. We're keeping, we're doing things. We're helping each other, you know. So finally, shit's getting thick, man. Helicopters are fucking following me. I'm like, man, something's not right. I'm like, people, my own close friends and family. Fucking helicopters? It's insane, man. I It was insane. On like a daily basis? That's like, that's like five was, stars on Grand Theft Auto, man. Yeah, no, so, no. <laughs> Never played it, man. Don't know nothing about it. I oh. lived it, though. I lived yeah, it. Exactly, no, yeah, exactly. Uh, He's telling the truth. Yeah, no. So it was uh, it was crazy, man. And people, my cousin, my people around me, my close they kept saying, Mikey, you crazy, man. You losing it. You losing it. You need to chill out. Are you on drugs? I'm like, man, I'm not on fucking drugs. That is not a military helicopter and it doesn't have it's not uniform and it's flying over government airspace which is the fort wainwright base that tells you what it is a government fucking vehicle a helicopter and it don't look like the army but it's flying over their shit you don't fly you don't hover over no fucking fort wainwright are, are you holding a significant pack at this time I was just tied up in something. So what happens was I was tied up in something. We had an idea that they was on to us because weird shit kept happening. Whenever you see like some weird shit happen, you're like... Yeah, but you're extra paranoid you have to on take everything, it. Yes. Right? At yeah. this point, I'm extra paranoid. You have to take this stuff in. You got to sit with this shit. So long story short, I got two shows to do here in Anchorage. Another guy, I'm not going to mention his name because we no longer associate with each other. He says, hey... Come out here and do this show, two shows in one day, one for the kids. A hip-hop show. Yes, we'll do a sh another show for, like, the adults. So come out here, he said. The other guys that were supposed to open up for the show, pull it out. So if you come, I'll look out for you, yada, yada, yada. So I hit my guy. I'm like, yo, man, you want to go out here? He's like, yeah. Well, I was going to come out here and make a play. I was going to come out here and do some shit while I was out here. You're double-dipping. I'm double-dipping at yeah. this time, right? So I'm going to make this plan. I'm like... I just didn't feel right. So I'm walking around, I'm pacing around. This is back when I used to smoke weed. So I'm walking around this uh, this uh, this house I'm in, 
and I'm pacing and I'm smoking blunts. And my best friend in 20 something years, he's looking at me and he said, he looks at me, he says, hey man, I've never seen you scared other than when your mom was gonna kick your ass. He said, if you don't feel right, then don't do it. Something's not right with you. And I said, you know what, nigga? You right. We're not going to do this. We're going to go out here for this weekend. We're going to stay at the top of a hotel. We're going to do these rap shows. We're going to fuck bitches. We're going to have fun. And when we're done, we'll come back and worry about this shit when we get back. Man, we get on the fucking plane from Fairbanks to Anchorage. Worst plane ride I ever had in my entire life. So you know how the planes are, right? Well, half the plane was cut off. There's a fucking wall. I never been on it. I never even seen another Alaska Airlines plane like this, right? Never even been on another one. I fly all the time, right? Half the plane was the like, plane like you there get was on. A wall. There was a wall. It like halfway down the aisle. Was a wall. Like not separating first class and no, you know. No, it was okay. an actual. Plus, there was yeah. no. There was no first class. It was. It was like a wall. It was like I don't. I Is like, there anybody else on the plane? Yes. So listen, there's other people on the plane. There's a small number of passengers on this plane. You know, so we get off. We get to Anchorage. We get off the plane. And I, as I'm walking down the thing, I see this guy. And I kind of like, man, I thought I'd seen him in the airport before. Because I got one of those, I got kind of, I got one of those memories. If I seen you, if I seen your face, I can remember. And I was like, man, I see that motherfucker somewhere before. And then we were walking. And my dude was like, yo, man, you see, him, you see that motherfucker over there talking to himself? And I was like, ah, oh, man, he probably got Tourette's, right? Tourette's? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm like, you know, I'm I'm a thug, so that's how we say shit, you know. He's <laughs> <laughs> talking so shit. He's talking shit, so I'm like, yo, man. Uh, he, I'm like, yeah, man, you know, he probably got threats or some shit. And my nigga was like, he looked at me, and then we started walking, right? We leaving, we leaving t Ted Stevens. We go down the little escalator, and we go to get your bags, right? Yeah. We go to get our bags. We walk up to the little conveyor belt where your bags come out, right? We walk up. We're on a full flight, mind you, right? We walk up to get our bags. Both of our bags pop out together, nestled together. And, it, and he goes, oh, I was like, look at that. The new Starbucks was in town, yada, yada. And as, as soon as I finished saying that, we realized, he said, they're here. I said, I know. We were the only two people standing up to get our bags. They had had everybody seated. I said, just be cool. We, we didn't have anything on us. So we grabbed our luggage. We turned around. And we going out the door. And as we're walking out of the Ted Stevens International Airport, we can see him converging on us from outside and behind us in the glass. So as soon as we get made it right outside, they had they shut the airport down. They had troopers. They had DEA. And, and you FBI. guys had nothing on you. Nothing on us, Brody. We had no, this is what I had on me. I had a duffel bag full of T-shirts and CDs and my hard drive with about seven years worth of work for Coffee House Entertainment. Everything that Coffee House Entertainment was at that particular time, from artwork to music, production, video footage, everything. I had in my duffel bag. All it was all business. So if you go back and you listen, I got a record that on a, a Requiem of the Streets meeting Mr. Coffee, where it's called Hip Hop Police, where I, I rap about I rap about that. People just think I'm like mocking the police. Most of it was a real story. So we get outside this airport, man, and they're fucking like they're like, uh, is this your luggage? Is this your bags? Can we look in it? And I was like, nah. And my homeboy was like, yeah. And I was like, well, let me see some identification, right? So these motherfuckers come out with uh, badges, Brody, DEA, FBI. So they come out with these badges. And like, of course, my legs fucking get hella weak. I'm like, yo, man, these motherfuckers are on us. They had us, they had us converged and surrounded, man. And um, he was like, let me check your bag. I'm like, nah, fuck that. I was like, you don't have no right to check my bag. My, my cousin, 
she and her friend and her baby, they had a baby in the car. The baby was really young. It was a toddler. It was in a, a car seat and shit. And they made her get out the car, told her they was going to take her car. I'm like, wait, what are you doing, man? Like, y'all can't do this. So I had to try to chill out. So I was recording them. And the motherfucker With your phone? With my phone. I had a Blackberry at this time. And uh, I'm recording with my phone. Like, why are y'all doing this? I'm not under arrest. Y'all can't just take my shit. And he was talking crazy to me. He's like, he's like, look, you little fucking punk. We could do whatever the fuck we want to do. I'm going to take your shit. And yada, yada, yada. And was talking hella crazy. And like, they never touched this though. Like, they never put their hands on it. I was kind of combative. Because like, I grabbed my bag. I realized, I was like, yo, man. Everything that actually means something to me other than my kids is in that bag. You so it wasn't, it wasn't the drugs that it meant was, anything to you. It was, it was, the, it was music. the music, it was the music and, your and the kids. merchandise. And my kids. What, did like, they think that you had drugs? They, they, they said, uh, do you, uh, we, we think you guys have a large sum of cash. We're under the impression that you guys have a large sum of cash. And I was like, man, I don't know what y'all talking about. They took my fucking bag, Brody. They took my bag that had my hard drive in it. And they had that shit for like eight months. And um, I just went into a deep, dark depression, Brody. I, didn't, I wouldn't leave my house. I was in a depression based off of a simple things like what do they know, right? And then other than my kids, they have everything that means something to me. They have all, they had a project. They, that's why people are like, yo, Requiem for the Streets, meeting Mr. Carter was supposed to come out at this time. Mm -hmm. Well, they took the fucking album. It was in a hard drive. People don't know. I lost that album. That album was taken from me three separate occasions. The first time is when I got the this Ted Stevens in at International Airport. The second time is when those agents ran up in U, UNDB studio. Raw Beats was the engineer. He had my project. I was just recording music at that point, so my music was in places like they got what, other than my freedom and the being able to fellowship with my friends and my family and my kids, like they had gotten what was important. Can, can, we, can you explain... Um, the, the UNDB situation. I mean, you know what? I won't get into that because... At least as far as you you know, and your music is concerned. My music, my music. All I did was uh, me and the owner came up together, grew up together. He used to come to Fairbanks, hang out. We built a... What, what, what are you guys talking about, actually? I'm not familiar. Like a... Like a what'd you call so, it? So uh, UNDB, it's yeah. uh, it, up north D-Boys, right? Yeah. It was just a rap group. Oh, okay. And, and so okay. they they actually got in a lot of trouble um, for moving drugs. I actually wrote an article for Noisy about it a while back called, I forget what it's called, but that's what he's referring to. And then, okay, cool. Uh, Sorry, uh, I just in, didn't in, know. In so far as what we're talking about right now is that they lost a lot of music, and it sounds like Starbucks. You also had some music that that was involved in that. Right, yeah, that was taken. I mean, yeah. I, 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 I eventually got my music back because Raw got back his Raw got his hard drives back. Yeah, Raw beats the but, producer. Yeah, he got yeah. his he got his some of his hard drives back. So I got my music back, but it was taken from me three separate times. But the first time it was taken, I was in a super dark place. I I hadn't spoken to my 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 old man in like over a year. He had fucked me over. He had just fucked me over royally while he was in prison, and so I hadn't spoken to him. I didn't have nothing to really do with him because we didn't have a healthy relationship as it was. He calls me like six or seven months into this thing. He calls me three-way through one of my aunts. He's like, oh, hey, I, I, I heard they, they ran up on you and, and they took your stuff from you. And I'm like, man, I was like, look, man, I don't got no time for this, man. I don't, I'm not trying to deal with all of that right now. And he's like, look, kid, get a lawyer and fight for your shit back. Get your shit back. If you don't, they're going to look at you harder. He said, this is what I got to tell you. You know, my father's been in the prison system in and out for over 30 years, almost as long as I've been alive. You know, he spent the majority of my, I'm 37, he spent the majority of my life in prison. 
you know, and he at this particular time he was in prison on a 15 year bid, which he would eventually do like 11 and three quarters of the of, in years off this bid. So he's calling me and he tells me, "You need to go and you need to fight. You need to go and fight for your stuff back. Get your shit back. Because otherwise, maybe you look guilty yeah. or what? And yeah. And then you know, and I think he knew that it. I think he knew in some way that it affected me." They got me. They got my heart. They took my. They took what I was putting down on music. What I was putting down on paper. They what I was building. I was building Coffee House Entertainment at that particular time, and it was the early stages. It was a foundation. I was learning how to be a businessman. I was learning how to, you know, document it and kept all my documents and kept all of my artwork, every everything. So in case I needed to go back or could go back or reflect on something, you know, archive it all. So I could do that. And they had gotten the hard drive. I didn't give a fuck about the t-shirts. I didn't give a fuck about the CDs. I only wanted that hard drive back. Well, long story short, I got the hard drive back. But here's how I got, here's what happened. So at this particular time, I'm in Oregon. I haven't been to Alaska since the incident happened. The incident happened. A day later, I was out of Alaska. Hadn't been back to Alaska in like almost a year. Come back. Different name. I've gained a bunch of weight. I got a big beard and I got a whole bunch of You hair. had a different name? I Incognito. I, I came back incognito. I came back. I came back incognito. What was your name? <laughs> yeah, I can't give you all that information. But I can tell You're so you. So secretive. I can tell you. I can tell you this. I came back and I flew in. I was supposed to fly, uh, land in Anchorage, and then go to Fairbanks. Um, well, when I landed in Anchorage, I got off the plane. No luggage. No nothing with me. Land in Anchorage. I get off the plane. Go to Walmart and get a phone. Flipped it. This is a fucking flip phone. This is how you know, man. So I'm going to say that to say this. So I get this phone. I fucking call this number that this lawyer's giving me to call. He's like, call this number. This is the people that's going to give you your stuff back. I call the number from this phone. And the FBI agent picks it up and says, Mr. Coffee, where are you at? So we can bring you your shit. They knew that I was here, brody. They knew they brought me my shit though. Like I had to, I had to meet them. I met them at the Ted Stevens International Airport. I videotaped that too. Wait, what? So are they just trying to make good, or what's no? Because the there was nothing in the bag. They got to give me back my shit. They, so, I didn't forfeit anything. They so was your shit. lawyer in on it? Like, do, I mean, who did you think that you were calling when you called I knew that I was number? Calling, I knew I was calling the police. That's why I went and got a fucking a burner phone. But it was a, it was a. A number that you're supposed to call. It wasn't just a number directly to Dustin or directly to Cody. It was a number that everybody is, calls this number. You know, like basically to get like your a, shit back number. I, I guess yeah, to get, yeah. get your shit back I, number. I, I've lost some shit. <laughs> Can I get that number? One nine hundred. Get your shit back. <laughs> is that where my socks are, dude? <laughs> you know, so I called this number, man, and he knew right away. It's like that's what he said when he picked up the phone. Mr. Coffee, where are you at so we can give you your shit back? This is kind of weird. Yeah, that's why I said I said that to say this. When you look at the Kavanaugh situation and you look at the lack of an investigation that the FBI did, the FBI's conviction rate is 98%. That's why when they come and get you, they got you. They know what the fuck they're doing. They they leave they no They build their case. They they build their case. They leave no stone unturned and no expenses none none spared. None spared. Well, so, are you part of the 2% then? Because they tried to get you and they didn't. But here's the thing. I was fortunate. I was very fortunate. I was very fortunate. I got the message. I was also fortunate to be around some solid individuals. You know, so I was very fortunate. I won't get into all the extra stuff, but I was very fortunate. I got the message. I didn't need another message. There's some people that don't get the message. And there's some people that don't. Some people allow their money to get so high that they lose clouds their judgment and their common sense. Their money get here and get up over and they can't see the bullshit on the other side of the money. 
And then you got niggas that come from nothing. They come from nothing. You they built themselves up. They made a few hundred thousand dollars, half a million dollars, a million dollars. You can't tell a nigga that come from nothing what he should do. Or nigga, I I did this. I built this. So when you try to talk to him, you already know like that shit is not a, about to register. That shit becomes a part of his identity. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. You know what, what? What I can't. What I'm having a hard time is like you're like going into depression about like your music getting stolen, and I get that. It, but it, like I, I, I look use at that. Look I, at the alternative. Yeah, it was the outer layer. It was jail. Yeah, the, the, you should be was, stoked. And, and that was the thing. It took me time to uh, process that mentally, emotionally, and mature. And realize, like, yo, man, like, you still get to fucking hang out with your kids. You know what I mean? Like, you get to spend time and watch them grow. That's a pretty strong realization. You know what I mean? It, it was. It was. And it was it was a humbling one, you know? Because as much as I wanted to complain, and finally, like I said, I had got to a point. I was just six, eight months in. I got to a point where, like, fuck it. I just start all over. It, it ain't that hard. At least I'm free. You know what I mean? At least I'm not in any trouble, you know? And then, like I said, I got the phone call, and it was like, go get your shit back. So I went and got my shit back, but it was a, it, and that at that point is when I was I became more focused on what I was trying to build and and also being a I I told myself at that particular time no longer can this lifestyle and my personal lifestyle and my music coincide with one another. I, I want to get back to that that moment where you had your bag at yeah. the airport. It's in your hands, and then the the officer on the other side is grabbing it and then you have this like realization of what's really important to you and what you said earlier was that it's my music or it's my family and my music how did that influence the decisions you made that from that point on like i said it took some time but i realized i said these two like my lifestyle my lifestyle cannot coincide with my personal life like i have to be separate this has to be separate when i'm doing music or i'm spending time with my family I'm doing music and spending time with my family. If I'm in the streets, I'm in the streets. I'd go fucking weeks, man, and not see my kids' face, not hear their voices, because I was a different person. And I felt like if I had to talk to them and see them, it would start to affect my judgment and my, my cold heart in the street at my other job. So it was difficult trying to have a find a happy medium or a balance. And so, like I said, I'd come back from this environment and go back home and it would take me a week. It take me the longest it took me was three weeks. Like, I, it was hard for me to find compassion for my kids. To um, like decompress from to the decompress. To, it was hard. It sounds a lot like what soldiers. What happens to soldiers exactly. after they come back from war? Exactly. And the only reason, the only reason I was able to uh, bring the two and to correlate the two like that was because I was watching a TV show and they were talking about PTSD and what these soldiers were, how they were being affected. And so then I just did a little bit of research. I'm one of those guys. That, and I said, man, these are the symptoms I'm having. This is what's happening to me. You know what I mean? And this is what the fuck's going on. You know, in the black community, when you suffer with mental health issues, it's always deemed taboo to go and see a therapist or a counselor. And I struggled, man. I struggled, especially during that particular time period. But it was, I had to realize, like I said, I take maturity and realizing like, yo, man, you bringing this stress on yourself, dog. So where does hip hop fit into all of this? When did that start? How, because it seems like at some point you had to come to the realization that it's going to, I have to make a choice. It's either going to be money or family and hip hop. And so what I'm hearing is hip hop's a big part of your life. It's a huge part of my life because it gives me an outlet. It allows me to uh, express myself, my feelings, what I've gone through. But it was tubby one day, like, 
I'm from the, I come from nothing, brody. You know what I mean? And so for me, like, a dollar came first before rap. I was the guy, like, when we were in high school, I was the guy that laughed at my friends because they rapped. I loved rap. I loved music. I was the young hustler. I'm getting to the money. You niggas is over here rapping? Nigga, that shit ain't paying no fucking money. I mean, you know, we going out to eat. We going out to hang out. I'm the only guy with money in his pocket. You know what I mean? But I'm doing the wrong things to get this money. You know, and my and my common sense and my judgment is being clouded and my maturity is being stunted because I think that this particular type of lifestyle and what the fuck I'm doing is right. Hip hop had always been a part of my life. I didn't take rap serious. Man, <laughs> it, I go off moments. I go off of moments. I didn't take rap serious. I wrote poems. I was involved in rap. I mean, I wrote poems and I wrote raps and I never shared them, never rapped them. Well, what I would do was I would rap them or do them in the bathroom when I took a shit or when I showered. My mother raised- Those were your first raps. Yeah. The, I, I had written tons of, tons of raps and I could freestyle really good when I was really young because I had just a quick memory. <laughs> I wrote some of my best some of my best shit on the toilet, man. I swear to God. That's where Eminem came up with his name is taking a shit. No shit. I read that somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> you asked me my correlation between hip hop. It's always been a part of my life, um, but I use it in moments. There's been moments in my life where like it's helped my life. It saved my life. You have a job right now, right? Yeah, yeah. What is that? I'm an I'm an electrician. I'm in the IBW. If somebody asked you right now, what is it that you do? You know, who are you? What what do you do? How would you answer that? I ask, I tell them that I'm a I'm a wireman electrician for uh, the IBW, and uh, also when I'm not in the IBW, I'm an entrepreneur. You know, business owner, entrepreneur, business owner. Yeah, because I mean, the first time I met you was a few weeks ago, and it was when you were recording an album. Yeah, and so you still got some shit going. Yeah, man, I got my hands in so much shit right now, man. So the reason I had it took me a second to get out here is because this year I was doing my second annual PFD Ladies Night that I do at the in and the your front. dad came to that right? You know, he he helped me set it up. So it was it was crazy because like I said, it's always moments. I always reflect on moments. I was supposed to have people, individuals come and help set things up, and that's where my old man came. My old man came. You know, um, he's in the halfway house. So he comes. He has a split second. He comes. And he's helping me put shit up, set the, t you know, set the banners up, set the stage up, you know, sh along with Tony Taylor. Then my oldest son shows up, you know, and then at that present time it was just me, my son, my dad and my girl. And we're putting everything up. And I just looked around and I said, you know what, like me and my dad do not have a healthy relationship. The relationship between us is more like he's just an old nigga from my neighborhood. He's just a cool guy. He's just a guy from my neighborhood. You know what I mean? And that's that's as far as our relationship goes. You know what I mean? Um, prior to this particular situation and this this ride for him, the most time I'd ever spent with my father consecutively or continually was in prison. I was in prison with my dad. I tell you, there's for moments. For how long? I was in prison with him for like, I was at the end of my stretch. He was about to start his newest stretch. So I was in prison with him for about a, almost two months, about two months. Most humbling experience I ever had in my fucking life. But I also learned a lot about him that I didn't know, which allowed, which allows me now to be more civil. How, how was it humbling? Uh, looking across the fucking mod and you see your old man or uh, they're mixing up your, both of your high blood pressure medications because you got the same name. And then we're two, we, we're totally different in personalities. Like we have the same mannerisms and so on and so forth, but we're, we have two different personalities. Like unless I know you, 
I'm not as talkative. I think a lot of people think like I'm an aggressive person or I'm fucked up or I'm a mean guy. No, I just, in my comfort zone, people I'm comfortable around, I talk, I socialize, but if not, I keep my fucking mouth shut. I don't speak unless spoken to. My old man is different. He's uncensored constantly. Doesn't matter if he got women or kids around. He's always talking. He's always moving. He's always talking. He's always, you know, and we also do time different. You know, he's used to being in prison. That's his home. I'm not used to being in prison. You know what I mean? And so it was just a humbling experience. I learned a lot about him and where he came from and why he is the way that he is, you know, by being observant and also listening. So why did you go to prison? I went to prison for selling dope. So I went to prison for two years. Uh, first felony, no priors. No prior drug convictions or nothing or arrests or anything. So I went to prison for two years. Victimless crime. What's the most important thing you learned in there? Patience. Patience. And the reason I say that is because when you're in prison, there's definitely one thing you are going to do or you're going to have to learn to do or a prison will do. It will make you patient and it will humble you. It will humble you. It made me patient because, you know, I was in prison. Like I said, there's always moments. There's always things that happen to you. My oldest son is having a tough time. I can't help him. I'm in prison. I got lawyers on the phone. We're trying to make shit happen. I'm trying to have my lawyers do this shit. And I, I don't have any weight because I'm a black man with a bunch of kids in prison on a drug charge trying to prevent some shit to hap from happening to my son. You know, what, what leg do I have to stand on? And then when I went off to prison, the mother of my twins was pregnant with my twins. You know, I'd never laid eyes on I didn't see my twins, you man. Didn't, you didn't I, see them born. I wasn't there to see them born. I didn't even see them until they were nearly a year old. What was that like seeing them for the first I guess time? Patience, man. You know, um, like I said, it was uh, it was humbling, man. I was, you know, it was humbling, and it also reassured me that the plan that I had put together in my head before I got out of prison, it was something that I had to do. And ever since I walked out of those prison gates, man, I've been hell bent on accomplishing my goals. A lot of them I have accomplished. I got more to accomplish. I continue to work at them. But the most important thing is to be a better parent, to be a better father. You know what I mean? And so prison taught me patience. It taught me patience because I didn't have any. I came from the streets. Everything was instant gratification. Sell dope, get the money, do what the fuck you want to do. Now that you are where you are and have gone through what you did, what do you think of drug dealers and drug dealing? I don't partake and I don't have a leg to stand on as far as passing judgment. You don't know that person's background. You don't know what they're trying to do. You don't know what they come from. Like I said, you can, selling drugs isn't always a situation where like you come from nothing so you got to sell drugs. Sometimes it's, it's, like I said, some people's family and fathers and shit taught them to live off the land, taught them to hunt, taught them to fish, taught them that shit. As to where there's some kids that are a victim of their own circumstance and environment where this is what they're taught. So this is all they know. Mom and dad taught them this. Uncles or the niggas in their neighborhoods taught them this. So this is all they know. Um, so I don't pass judgment. You know, I don't pass judgment. What I do is if I'm going to change the world, uh, I start with in my house first and give my kids the proper values and the proper morals. And I tell them, hey, man, stay away from drugs. Don't use them. Don't sell them. Stay away from that shit. You don't want that shit. Take it from me. I know firsthand, you know? And so 
That's my job. My job, I can't be, I can't tell the next man or the next woman not to sell dope. I can, like I said, I got to start with in my house if I want to change the world and in my community. So, and that's what I've been trying to accomplish. So as a parent, how do you approach that situation talking to your kids where I, I've known you for a little while now and you're a smart guy and I know that you've probably thought of this, like I can't come off like a hypocrite. Like, how do I, how do I approach this situation and deter them from taking the same route as me Sometime without coming it, off like a hypocrite? You know, my oldest boys are teenagers. So when you get to the teenage years, you fucking know everything, yeah. you know? So I have to, some days, sometimes it takes days for me to put together my spiel that I'm going to tell them. Sometimes I have to take things that uh, they're experiencing or they can relate to and correlate the two and be like, yo, this is what I mean by that. Stay away from that. That's how I try to do it. Because, you know, like I said, they're teenagers. They know every fucking thing at this particular time. And so my thing is, I don't want to be talking to deaf ears. Mm -hmm. And I tell them, hey, man, here's my flaws. Look at my flaws. Learn from me. I am a fucking example. Do not do that. You know, it seems to me like that's hard. You know, Cody, you, you ask them, you know, how do you say that without being hypocritical but when you're in that position of like being someone's parent you have to come yeah. from like a place of authority a place of confidence right and, you don't and also love but, yeah but so it's it's got to be tough to show weakness to them but in essence in order to not be hypocritical you have to show weakness you have yep. to be like i fucked up i had flaws yep and i just know even like the way i look at my younger brother and sister i view myself as like a role model i can never show weakness when i have problems in my life i don't go to them and so yeah. it seems like I'm not a parent, but it seems like that would be difficult. Very, because I'm the same way. There could be turmoil in my life. You'll probably never know. I'll laugh. I'll shoot jokes. You know what I mean? And I'm never the guy to be like, yo, man, like, yo, shit is all bad for me right now. Yeah. You know, but so but to be to be vulnerable to them, um, it also it shows them dad is human. I'm human, man. And I only want the best for you. And this, these jewels I'm dropping on you, man. Take them from me, boss, because they're out here. They're killing black and brown people every single day. And if they're not killing them, they're burying them in the bottom of the penal system. And that's how it's working. It's a new day and age of slave trade. It's a new day and age in Jim Crow. And when people hear you say that, they're like, ah, oh, he's militant or he's racist or he thinks white people are out to get him. Nah, man, it's, it's systematic. I see it. Mm -hmm. So what I'm tr I try to tell my boys, hey, man, you don't want to be in the system. So a big part of being a father is absorbing what's what's going on in the world. Yeah. And then giving it back to your yeah. kids in a constructive way. I mean, how how have you been doing that right now with what's happening in the world? God, that's a good that's a great question, man. Especially with my oldest teenager. See, it's crazy because my oldest boy, because he's such a millennial and because he's so in, he follows so much social media, he can be, I wanna say, not um naive, misinformed. Because of the way social media is. Asked where my second son, he's extremely, extremely intelligent and he will pick things apart. So the question that you asked me, great question to ask. So uh, example, this Kanye West situation. I had to break it down to my son. You know, because I posted on Facebook. Kanye West and Trump. I saw Kanye, it post. Yeah, yeah. So what he, happened with that exactly? Kanye, you know, he went and had a meeting in the Oval Office and Kanye's ideology was pointed in the right direction. But Kanye is um, isn't well versed and undereducated in the things that he was trying to, dis to discuss. And he wasn't very prepared. So some of that shit he was saying, it had some value to it. 
But here's the thing. You can have something of value and not utilize it properly. So is there any value in it? If, you, if there's something of value and you're not using it properly, what happens? Like you could have it the bullet and the gun, instant. but if you don't know how to load it and, and hit your target, you're not going to hit your target. Boom. And that's what happened to him. Um, I don't know who the fuck his handlers are, but they got to quit letting people run a camera and run a microphone in his face and letting him just ramble. Um, yes. Yeah. So, so I, I'm kind of in the dark here. What did Kanye West do and say? Or, <laughs> dude, yeah, it was like uh, a 30 minute meeting with like Trump, and yeah. there was cameras. Just I saw that there was a meeting, but I, I guess I don't know the specifics of it. He wanted to discuss. He was trying to discuss uh, criminal justice reform, the restructuring of corporate America, the infrastructure of corporate America, and building factories again here in America. And this is the person that we need to hear this from is, is Kanye West. And that was my point. <laughs> this was my point. And that was my point. If you are going to have a platform and you have a message to convey to people and you're going to take on the responsibility of speaking for a culture and other people. When you walk into this room and open up your fucking mouth, be prepared. Know where you're going. Know what you're going to say. Know how you're going to present it. And here's the thing. Be educated. And if you're not very well educated, what you do is you find the people that are living their entire, have been living their entire professional lives or lives fighting for these social injustices or for these causes to bring them to the forefront. So you do what Colin Kaepernick has done. He's teamed with people. He's teamed with agencies, people that are in the know about this shit and trying to bring awareness to it. Bring them with you. You shut up. Bring them with you. You let them hit those points. You, your criminal justice reform. You, you want to talk about the corporate, the restructuring of corporate America and bringing factories. And you, you're a civil rights person and a lawyer. You talk about the 13th Amendment and so on and so forth and so on and so forth. I don't give a fuck about dimensions. Uh, he's talking about other dimensions. And I'm probably in prison in another dimension right now. Shut the yeah, fuck up. Yeah, he kind of went a little Well, I think that that's how, that's how um, somebody who is ignorant to the facts that you're talking about, that's how yeah. they talk about the situation in this nebulous form. And that's what I be telling my son. Believe nothing. Question everything. Just because a motherfucker told you don't mean it's true. Just because you kind of read it in this book don't mean it's true. Just because social media or this news is saying this shit don't mean that it's true. Nigga, go dig. Do some research. Educate yourself. Strengthen your mind, man. You know, it ain't always about strengthening your pockets. Strengthen your mind, man, and you will start to see the world the way that it really fucking is. My girl, who comes from a conservative family. Now, see, we have different... She comes from a conservative family. She votes conservatively. I don't care who the fuck you vote for. I don't care who you like. That's not my control. Shit, I'm gangbang affiliated. I'm affiliated with real niggas, bro. You can't tell me shit about them. I don't give a fuck about your opinion. They good niggas to me. So likewise, I can't tell you who to vote for. I can't tell you who to like. Politics can cause issues, man. Huh. They can cause... They, yeah. You can, like, you know what I mean? Like It can fuck some shit up. Like yeah. Me and my girl have gotten in talks, and we didn't communicate for like two or three fucking days. Mm -hmm. the, one of the biggest fights we've ever been in, she's like... You don't, because um, my my children are mixed. She says, um, you don't you don't even identify with the fact that your kids are part white. And I said, wait, you're wrong. She said, you you talk to them and treat them and teach them about their black culture. You don't embrace their white culture. I said, that's not true. For one, they know they've been raised with their mothers. They have white family. They're, they they've been immersed in that culture. But right now, I'm raising two young black men in America, and you guys are a fucking walking bullseye. So let me tell you right now, to me, I see you as my son. I don't see you as black and white. I see you as my child. 
to America, they see you as a black kid. They see you as a nigga. They don't not see color. There's a small handful of people that don't see color. It is your job. It is your responsibility. It is my job. It is my responsibility to make sure I give you the tools so when people see you and they judge you, they base they base their opinion on you based on the way that you carry yourself and you conduct yourself. Not that you're black. Not that you're black and white. Your job is to make people see you for you. And my job is to give you the fucking tools. As a human. As a human. That's Just see them as a human. I grew up with no racial barriers. like, And that was crazy because on my dad's side of the family, my grandparents are from the fucking deep south during the fucking civil rights movement. My great-grandmother on my mom's side, her mother was a slave. You know what I mean? So like, I don't have no... My grandmother on my mom's side had white in her. Well, I want to ask you a question here. You, you know, you mentioned uh, Black America, right? And yeah. Is there a Black Fairbanks? Yes. You know what I mean? And if there is, can you explain what it was like to grow up in the black community of Fairbanks? Oh, man. Uh, my family was the black sheep. There's, there's well, three. I, I, growing up in middle school, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. I, rem I knew about the coffee family. You were kind of a famous family. You know, I'm pretty sure I went to school with Alicia. That's my sister. Yep, That's my youngest exactly. sister. Yeah, so, so I went to school with her. And that yeah. was that stigma. It was, it was the coffees, the Baileys, and the Averys. And if you were one of those... Like, you were not treated very well. Did the coffees and Baileys ever hang out and get crazy? <laughs> yeah, so... Do you ever put I, you the know, Baileys in the coffee? Yeah. You know, um, God bless his soul. Mr. Bill Bailey, a.k.a. The Chief, him and my him and my father and some of my uncles and stuff, they ran together. Um, you know, he just passed away recently. So he was another guy. Like I told you, there's always these moments, these, these humbling experiences. So his son and me... Our good friends, we grew up together. We, we graduated in the same class. His son went overseas and played basketball overseas. Well, at the height of his son's career in basketball over overseas, we both came home for Christmas. Both of us freshly 21. We tried to go into a strip club called Reflections. We hand them our IDs. They saw your name. They seen our names. And they said, no, he said, the ABC rule. And I was said, huh, what's oh, the ABC fuck. rule? No Avery's, Bailey's, or Coffee's. And I'm like, what? I'm like, man, I'm like, I'm just a new 21. I've never been in here in my entire life. I've never, bruh, do you know that some of us would have to sneak into a strip club? When I got to a certain point, I got too much fucking pride. I'm not fucking sneaking into a strip club based on the fact that they won't let me in because of my fucking last name. I don't like strip clubs anyway. That ain't my thing. I'd rather have her at my house getting naked for me. You know what I mean? Like, I don't yeah. want to give her dollars. I'll take her to lunch or something, but I don't want to fucking just give her dollars to dance on me. Let's get back to uh, Dustin's original question. Black Black Fairbanks. Black Fairbanks. Yeah, well, because I grew up in Fairbanks. Yeah. And, you know, I felt, I don't know if it's the fact that we're growing up in a cold environment or mm -hmm. what. I didn't sense, like, racism, really, between, like, white people and black people. But maybe I'm naive, you know? Um, it only happened to me, uh, I mean, it happened to me in different ways. Yeah. Um. Alaska is extremely ethnically diverse. So when I did leave from Alaska and I went off to college in Oregon, I was like, yo, where's all the niggas at? Where's all the black people at? Like, right? Man, there was the first college I went to, there was a grand total of like maybe nine of us. And most of them niggas played on the basketball team. And me and this other black guy, we played on a baseball team. So like there wasn't a lot of black people. So I was a culture shock. But coming back to your question, in Fairbanks, 
I never really experienced outright racism. I did experience um I did experience uh, people passing judgment on me having predisposed. Yeah, it sounds like with the name with, with, with my name, so I couldn't get opportunities or I was shunned for certain reasons. You know what I mean? Like but, things that I'm not gonna see. Yeah, the first the first time that I experienced real racism and um, knew that I was experiencing real racism. I was 14 years old. Me, my mom, and her ex-husband, we went, his, his, his family was from North Carolina. Well, we went to South Carolina, Myrtle Beach, and a hurricane was coming. And at that particular time in Myrtle Beach, it was one way in and one way out. And people were trying to get the fuck, fuck out. out. People were trying to get out. And we weren't treated very well. We're tight on gas. So he turned the AC off because it burns the gas. So like I'm in the backseat sweltering. So we wanted to pull off of the road and go to a hotel. Well, we walked into the hotel and there was a Confederate flag. Oh, shit. And it didn't register to me, you know, until we was getting back in the car. I'm like, why are we getting back in the car? We've been in this motherfucking car for hours and we ain't even made it 250 yards. Why are we getting back in the car? Why can't we just stay here? And he said, we ain't welcome here. It didn't register because they had the Confederate flag. And then when we walked in, the way that the, the people l looked at us, like, yo, Nick, you know you're not supposed to be up in here. Do you think that we're better as a country now than we were then? Oh. No. No, no, no. Um, but if you look through America's history, if you look through our country's history, there always comes these times where, um, you know, us as a people begin to rebel and, re and, be and begin to, you know, protest and challenge civil rights and challenge things. And right now is one of those. It's happening. Right now, it's, it's a time in America, man. You know, I'll give you another quick story. Like I said, I'm raising young black men in my house. My son's getting a, a, a verbal dispute with another kid, another black kid in my, in my condominium complex. I get a call. He says, guy says, hey, man, your kids are out here uh, in a disagreement. He said, as soon as I came, the oldest one shut it down, went inside. He said, the second one, he said, the younger one was yielding a rock at this other kid. And he's arguing with him and they're cussing at each other. And I tell him, you know, basically to cut the shit out. He says, your younger one leaves. I think it's over. Your younger one comes back out and he's brandishing what looks like to me to be a firearm. My son went in my house. Two weeks prior, he had a BB gun, a pellet gun that fucking looked real and auto, like an automatic. Dude, you're going to get shot. That was my sentiments exactly. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm like, what the fuck was you thinking, bro? I'd yeah. already took it from you. It, you. I took it from you. I put it in my room. You went in my fucking room and you got it. Then you go in the house and you bring it out and you fucking brandish it. At another kid, at another young black kid, mm -hmm. at that, they're killing you every day for the same shit. Every fucking day, they're killing you for the same shit. It scares the shit out of me. Yeah, that's gonna to, scare them. To, I was only gone from my house for maybe an hour. You know what I mean? So, so how do you talk to him about that? How how do you how do you say, look at what the fuck's happening in this country right now? Look at how many people so, are dying. So he looked, because of firearms. So. So because of this, the, the, the situation and the way that it occurred, I disciplined both of them. They both lost privileges, you know, because I had a talk with him a day prior. Saying, Why both of them? We don't want to go over that again. You're equally trouble. You're both in trouble. You should have never even let him come back out the house with it. Brothers are responsible for, for each other. Period. That's a good lesson Period. to teach him. You, you should Well, I didn't do it. You let him come back out in the fucking house with it. First off, you disobeyed me because yesterday I told the both of you, I heard you talking about 
if this kid said something to you, what you guys were going to do. And I turned the music down and I said, isn't that kid you guys' friend? They said, yeah. I said, well, don't be fighting nobody. Don't hang out with him for a couple days because y'all clearly are irritated with each other. Mm -hmm. That's your friend. He ain't your enemy. He's not causing you them type of issues. Don't fight. Don't get into that shit. So you disobeyed me there, you know, and I had to discipline them both because at the end of the day, I don't want to discuss this again with y'all. Do you think that lessons are learned through being humble? Because that, that seems like a theme that we keep coming back to. And, yeah. and that's kind of what I'm I'm reading in, in the yeah between the lines here. Man, definitely. So then for a month, every Monday, Jay-Z had put had executive produced the uh, Trayvon Martin story. Mm -hmm. I made them fucking, I don't care what you're doing. I don't give a fuck about a video game, playing basketball, hanging with a friend. Monday, 7 o'clock. You're right here, right on this couch, right now. And we're going to watch all of this shit. And you better you better pay attention because I'm going to ask you questions. But after the first episode, I never had to say another word. Because they saw. They were like, well, 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 well why? Well, how come? That ain't fair. That's not right. That's not the fucking point. You're seeing what is happening this is a young kid this is the world you're living this is in. the world you're living in right now this is what's happening right now i told my oldest son he was two years older he was two years older than you he went and he had some fucking tea and some fucking skittles and because he had his hoodie on he is no longer here and nobody's in jail for it you know what i mean and so i seen it resonate with them so i let him watch it and initially it started out as me making them watch it but after that, I didn't have to make them watch anything. They were more intrigued by it and just trying to find some understanding. Sometimes when there's a lot of pain going on in the world or in people's lives, eventually there will be um, a lot of peace and enjoyment, and, and enjoyment. I think that we're just in a difficult place right now as a country and as a people and uh, with the right people that have the right core values. Uh, we're going to get through it because people are going to keep pushing. I want to talk about firearms for a second yeah um and you know one thing cody's mentioned in a few of these podcasts is that different parts of america have different relationships with firearms yeah what is what is your relationship with firearms what is what is the black community's relationship with firearms uh firearms i think as far as all cultures man are viewed as firearms some people feel the more you have the safer you are more high power rifle you got the safer you are and 90 i want to say 90 something percent of america the reason they have as many assault rifles and as weapons as they do you want to know why they're in fear of their own government they're not in fear of the neighborhood gangbangers is, is is that would you say in your community in the black community they have firearms because of government i mean the police or, or why do they all, all of the above just like in the white community what happens is when you get media, when you get media and people that come from certain environments and certain neighborhoods, they say, well, I got to keep mine on me. I got to keep my strap on me because I know that Cody got one on him. I know that Dustin got one on him. You know, and what happens is, is uh, some of it is over sensationalized gun violence, because what happens is, OK, we're in a black community. Me and Cody got in a shootout. And now that shit is heightened on social media and so on and so forth. Yes, uh, young black kids are killing other young black kids with weapons. Yes, that's going on in America. But I feel like the, to answer the, your question the way you asked it, um, they're the same. 
It's the same. It's, you know, the white guy from suburbia is carrying his pistol because Dustin from suburbia might come into a coffee shop and shoot everybody up. Mm -hmm. You're saying it's the same. Do you think the two different communities, white suburbia and say inner city black, do you think they're perceived the same as in their relationship with firearms? I think that America views the white suburban, you know, guy as as the responsible gun owner. And even though... The motivations to have the gun are the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, and, I can agree with that. I can agree with that. But what happens is when you look around, right? When you look around and you see these mass shootings, was it anybody from a inner city neighborhood? No. Yeah. School shootings, school right? Shoot, school, school shootings. Yeah. These shootings. These most of the time, these guys got these. Most of the kids in the inner city got these guns to protect themselves from others. Like they, they, you know what I mean? Like they're like, yo, man, like. I know this nigga's not going to shoot me a fair fade. He's not going to fight me. He isn't. He he don't got the heart to fight me. He'll probably going to fuck around and shoot me. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a pride thing. Once your pride builds up to a certain point, it becomes a pride thing. Well, look at if we're talking about school shootings versus, you know, um, something a little bit more drug related or yeah. gang related. Or- it, it, that, that comes with uh, pride as well, right? Yeah. You're, you've been bullied. So yeah. you want to go in there and you want everybody else to pay. You, exactly. You, how how do you gain respect? Exactly. Right? Yes. Yeah. You know. So uh, when you get the media, like I said, when you get the media involved, um, the perception can be changed. Do you it think can that, be, that it can be labeled? We talk about media and journalism a lot on the podcast, and I think that we've come we've come to a point in this conversation where I think that we can bring it up in that media is painting certain situations for a desired outcome that the public is going, you know what I mean? Like yeah. they're, they're going to, they're going to say, Oh, this situation happened like this, even though maybe that's not exactly how it happened. And then it's going to instigate outrage from a certain demographic. It, yeah. It's, yes. it's like, it's like a plus B equals C, whereas they start with C mm-hmm. and then pick out a and B to make sure it equals that instead of being like, Oh, here's X and Y. And how do we actually... get the desired outcome? Yeah, exactly. They're, <laughs> yeah. they're not like looking at the facts and, and like seeing what the outcome is. They're starting with the outcome. Exactly. Let's just say hypothetically, you get to make this choice, right? Yeah. All we can we can ban firearms. There's no more firearms, or we keep them. And when I say we ban them, it's like let's just say they disappear in America. Is America better off without any firearms, or is America better with firearms? That's a good question. Um, you take away all the firearms. What happens is uh, you start seeing who the real punks and real pussies are. That's what happens. There's some guys that have firearms. Because it makes them a tougher person. There's some people, that's just a plain, good old fundamental common sense. If you can play God, do you take them away? I take them away. And if we got an issue, either we learn how to find a fucking solution, we sit down, we talk, we communicate, or you know what? We're going to get out here, we're going to square up in the middle of this street, and when this shit is over, this shit is over, and whoever the victor is, they've made their point. And no one has to die. You have a lot more people. No one has to die, but you know what? You have you, you know what you'll do. You have a lot more people willing to sit down across from a table from one another and have a meaningful conversation and find solutions or agree to disagree or compromise. Do you know anyone that's been shot and killed? Yes. Yep. What's what's that like? You know, man. Um, it's no fun. It's not a good thing. It's not a good experience. Um, and like I always tell you guys, like there's, there's just moments, things happen and you like, you fucking wake up. You're like, man, like, yo, that could have been me. You know, I was 14 years old, man. 
a guy shot at me. He tried to kill me several times. Tried hard. In Fairbanks? Yes, hard. Tried hard. Who? His name was. Uh, I mean, was it was it? They, no, they called. Was he, an adult? We, he was. Yeah, he was adult. I was a fourteen year old kid. He heard that my family was Crips, and he was a white kid. He was a blood, and at that particular time, the gang culture was uh, rampant in Fairbanks and in Anchorage. And long story short, I was in the locker room. I play hockey. I was only one black, only black guys playing hockey. We're in a locker room. His brother drops an M bomb, so I dropped bombs on his brother. I roughed his brother up. I kicked his ass. Well, with that and the fact that. Uh, who he assumed I was affiliated with it as far with my family and was a gang and who he was affiliated with, uh, he took it personal. He tried to kill me outside the fucking Noween Library in Fairbanks. He tried. We didn't testify. We didn't say nothing. I didn't say nothing. Is that fucking scary being shot at? Oh, man, it was brutal because where I was, he was, the guy was in his car and I was standing at the back end of the car and I was in the wide open. So my cousin's they're jawing at him. I'm jawing at him. And my cousins could see. I couldn't see from where I was at. And he said something, you know, disrespectful to my cousin, you know, and, and, and my cousin said something back to him. And then I guess he reached for the gun. I didn't know it was there. Well, my cousin grabbed a rock and threw a rock through one of his, he said, run, and threw a rock through one of his windows. And I turned and I started running. Now, mind you, there's fucking snow. It's winter. It's like it's about to be summertime, but there's a ton of snow. I hit the book drop. As soon as I hit the book drop, I duck. Bam! Bam! And I'm fucking running. That's how I got the scar on my face. He shot, and some of the debris off the building scraped my fucking face. And so I run all the way around this fucking library. I get on the other side, like air, between airport and Lathrop, the other side of the library, and it's nothing but an open fucking area. And I'm in snow up to my fucking waist. And mind you, at this time, I'm small, I'm a small guy. And he's in his car pulling into the intersection. And he, he's got a wide open shot. I don't know if he was out of bullets. I don't know why he didn't shoot again. I thought I was going to die right there. So I fucking turned around in the fucking deep ass snow and ran back the other way. And you didn't hear any more gunshots? No. No. They they did a drive-by on my grandparents' property. He was gunning. You know, he ended up going to prison. But like I said, we never said nothing. We didn't tell on him. We didn't, we didn't cooperate. Describe the moments shortly after this when you go back to your community and your family. What, what, what happens then? Man, I was 14 years old. I'm not even 100 pounds soaking wet. I mean, are you talking to was, your parents? No, we didn't talk about it. It wasn't something that was discussed. I don't, to, honestly... I don't know how, I never asked my mom how she felt, but I can tell you this, from that moment on, when I left the house to school or to anywhere else, I never left without a, without a firearm. I had a gun. When I you a, went to school? Kid, when I went to school, I, have a, I had a bubble down jacket and I'd have a fucking 44 Magnum in my fucking bubble down jacket. So you're sitting in class with a 44. With a, with a gun. See, that's that's the difference between with like my Fairbanks and your Fairbanks. Yeah. And, Even though we're in the same school. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, if you are not, if you are not a part of uh, that particular life, uh, part of lifestyle, you'll miss it. We talked about, you know, me raising my kids and, uh, you know, Black America and stuff like that. Let me see. I got something. That I told my oldest son, stay focused. Don't forget to pray. 
The justice system out here fucking nev- niggas every day. <clears throat> yeah, let me see here. It's kind of tough to wrap this one. It's a little tough, but. I told my oldest son, stay focused, don't forget to pray. The justice system out here fucking niggas every day. Mandatory sentences, the simplest way to keep us caged. Pay attention. Be on your P's and Q's. Don't let them crackers beat your brain, don't get confused. Be in the know, don't be nobody muse. Life is what you make it. I'll provide the tools. You know what I mean? So like, I don't know. I, I'm going to save that. I got to save that. I got to save that. Yeah. Is that on the new album? Yeah, I got to save that. Yeah, I, it's on the new album. It's 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 deep, man. It's deep. Uh, you know what I do for y'all? I play it from my phone. It's just one of those songs where, like, it, it, I felt like the message was real. Mm-hmm. So it, if it, it affects me when I try to rap it, I still haven't gotten to a point where, like, I feel I can rap it, you know, and and not become a, a, a emotionally connected to it, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm talking to I'm talking to my son, I'm talking to my kids, you know what I mean? And it's what's going on in America, like right now, mm-hmm. you know. And so I play this joint for you. This is called What's in Your Head. I took a sample from the Cranberries. This is Tay Tarantino and myself, produced by Raw Beats, co-produced by myself. Raw helped me put this together. And yeah, this is this is it. I'll, I'll play this here for y'all. Y'all heard it here first.
conflicting reports about what led up to the shooting. NBC's John Yang has the details. On the streets of Ferguson, Missouri, outrage and anger. Protesters of different ages and races demanding answers in the shooting death of 18-year-old Michael Brown at the hands of a policeman. Struggle spilled out onto the street where Brown, whom investigators say was not armed, was fatally shot. Police shot this man for no reason. You can support local grassroots journalism at patreon.com slash crude magazine. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a platform that makes it easy for you to support content that matters to our community for as little as $1 a month. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by Cody Liska and Dustin H. James for Crude Magazine. Intro music was produced by Alcoda Beats.